when you amplify your faith, you make it hard to ignore. And one of the things that James talks about over and over again is what your faith looks like when it gets to sea level, when it leaves you know, the, 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 uh, the, the philosophical and the doctrinal sort of areas in which people like to debate the, the facts of God. And what does that faith look like once it gets to sea level, once it gets to the ground? And we've been looking at that over and over again. Tonight we're going to, to look at this, um, this idea of, of, of true wisdom and where it all comes from. And I want to begin with a story. In, in, in terms of, uh, or with a question, in, in light of, of Darren's reading tonight, as he was reading it, and you listen carefully to the words, was there a biblical story or biblical stories that came to mind? Now, here again are some of the key words. Humility, envy, selfish ambition, unspiritual, demonic, disorder, evil, comes down. Does that remind you of any biblical stories? Well, it should remind you of a couple of stories out of Genesis 1 through 11. The first one is the fall of, hum- of humanity. Some of the most important words in the Bible are the first ones. In the beginning, God. God created everything out of nothing. Everything that we experience in the material world traces its origin back to God. In what we call the six days of creation, God created everything. Proverbs chapter 3 says it this way. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, He set the heavens in place. On the seventh day, you have the six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And you'll remember Dr. Mars when he was talking about in his his go through the book of, of, of Genesis very quickly on Saturday evening. He talked about the meaning of what resting on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath was all about. That's what kings do. Kings do not exert energy. Kings rest over their kingdom as a sign of their sovereignty and their power and their absolute authority. And that's what God does on the seventh day. On the seventh day, He rested, not meaning that He's taken a vacation, but that He ruled over creation. A sovereigns are so powerful and they are so important that their rule looks like they're resting over their domain. And this is why, quite frankly, the Sabbath was so important to the Hebrews. It was not just an opportunity to cease from their work, but it was a ceasing from their work in order to remember that it's God that rules over all of creation. Then one day, there's this creature of the earth that appears and speaks to the woman about the fruit on the tree that the humans are prohibited, not supposed to eat. A serpent appeals to the woman's thoughts about God and God's intent for intent intent for the humans he says god doesn't want you to eat the fruit because then you would be like god and he begins to convince the woman that god does not have the the man and the woman's best intentions at heart the woman ate some you know at some point decided that being like god was what she really wanted quite ambitious and so she ate of the fruit she ate of the forbidden fruit and she gave some to the man to eat also And what happens is evil and disorder are introduced into God's good creation. We'll go, uh, we could talk about some of the other stories that are found in Genesis 1 through 11, but we'll go to chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, humans are getting ambitious again. They want to build a tower into the heavens. It is, they want to build this tower that gets into the face of God. And it's not the project of a humble heart. It is an ambitious project project to get into the face onto the level onto the plane of god in the heavens in a bit of irony as the humans are trying to build higher and higher into the heavens the lord genesis says comes down to them 
and confuses their language. He scatters them across the earth. Chaos reigns. And in a, 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 a section of Scripture where there are genealogies and names all over the place, you come to this particular story and you have all of these people working on this project, not a single name known or remembered. About humility and true wisdom. And so one of the big questions that is introduced in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but it's repeated over and over again throughout the Bible, is this. What makes a human wise? How are human beings supposed to be wise in a world like this? And this is where James takes us tonight. And he's going to help us to see it by two questions. He's going to ask, what is wisdom? And then number two, how do you get that wisdom? So what is the wisdom in the Bible? Number one, it's informational and incarnational. There's a part of wisdom that is informational. It's about the knowledge of how you live in a world like this. But it's not just informational where it stays up there in this, this ephemeral kind of level of thinking. It also is incarnational, meaning that it becomes flesh. It is something that is lived out. Wisdom, biblically speaking, is not primarily a body of information that you've committed to memory. Here's the definition that we used in the very first sermon from Gary Holloway. The word... Wisdom usually refers less to factual knowledge and more to skill. It is more know-how than know-that. Particularly, biblical wisdom deals with knowing how to live. One of the commentators on James says it this way. When James begins to talk about wisdom in James chapter 3, James is not telling his readers to be wise. What he is telling them is to manifest wisdom. And it makes sense, right? Wise people actually live in the wisdom that they say they possess. In other words, wisdom is much more than words. It's the demonstration of what you know being merged with how you live. It's the two-dimensional words from heaven coming to life in a three-dimensional life. It's a life that acknowledges without having to say so that it's rooted in God. People see the fruit of of, of, of living a godly life in the way that you live. It's taking something abstract and making it tangible and palpable and even detectable. And James says that this wisdom is seen in two ways, and this is not an exhaustive list, but he's helping the readers to understand that this is what wisdom is all about. He says in verse 13, let them show it by their good, de their good life and by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. He says, first, a, a beautiful life is the product of wisdom. It's a beautiful life. Greeks, as you know, have all kinds of different words. You know, the Eskimos have like 39 words for snow. The Greeks would have multiple words to describe things, where in English we might have just one. For example, love. The Greeks have four words for that. Storge, philos, um, agape, and, and eros. To, to me, the one English word, love, that we use for all of these different things, although they're different. The same is true with the word good, G-O-O-D. There are actually two words in the Greek language. The word agathos describes something that is intrinsically good and healthy. Like you say, man, that tree over there, that's a good tree. It's healthy. But then the word kalos, K-A-L-O-S, kalos describes something as, as, as beautiful to the eye. It is good. It, it's pure. It's, it, it's, it's something that is attractive to the eye. Now here's an example of both of those words being used in one sentence, Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. He says, likewise, every good tree, there's the word agathos, which means healthy and good, and doing what it's supposed to do, every good tree 
bears good, that is beautiful, callous fruit. A healthy tree is going to bear beautiful fruit. Now, a beautiful life is the product of wisdom. If you are living according to the wisdom that comes down from heaven, the product is going to be a beautiful life. Look at this list in verse 17. It's a life that can be described as pure. It's, it's peace-loving. It's a life that's considerate. It's a life that is submissive and, and humbled. It's full of mercy. There's good fruit. Remember the good fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. When, when good fruit is talked about in terms of a, of a life, it's about faith and love and it's, it's about faithfulness and gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. It, it's a life that's impartial. It doesn't look at somebody and begin to make judgments based on facades. And it's sincere. So one of the things that you begin to see as you live according to godly wisdom is that it begins to create a beautiful life. Now this morning we talked about, you know, when we're talking about this theme, amplify, it means to live a life of faith that's hard to ignore. And we talked this morning about how, you know, sometimes we can live the faith in such a way that people do want to ignore it. Here is where James begins to talk about a life that attracts people. This kind of wisdom-driven life is a life that is attractive to people because it draws people in. It, it's peace-loving, it's merciful, it, it's impartial, it's sincere, it's considerate. All of those are the kinds of relational ideas and concepts that actually unify people and, and make relationships healthy where people feel like they're being loved and they're being served and being celebrated. But James moves on and says, you know, secondly, it's not just that this kind of wisdom creates a beautiful life. It's a humble life of blessing other people. It's deeds done in humility. The word actually there is meekness, where the, the strength that you have is somehow reined in. They, they, you know, the idea of, of meekness in, in the Bible is you have this, this stallion who is a war horse, and he's, he's full of dynamic power, and he's ready to charge forward, and there's, there's just all of this strength and all of this power and all of this force of nature that's in this animal, and yet he is holding it back, and it's under control. And what James is saying is that in meekness, in, in the strength of your character, in the strength of your life, you're not running roughshod over people, but in humility, you're trying to bless other people. It's deeds done in humility. It's, it's, it's your strength dedicated to things that are not about you, but are about other people. And one of the really interesting things about this passage is that, is that it is entirely in the context of relationships. He's not talking about, okay, this is a beautiful life because you can look at it from afar and observe and sort of objectively look at it and say, yeah, you know, that is a, that's a man of character. That's a, a woman of, of, of noble honor. No, in the context of chapter 3, it's in relationships. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, it's, it's how we use our words in relationships. In chapter 4, the next chapter that we're going to be looking at next Sunday morning, verses 1 through 12, it's how we form community and fellowship with one another. It's by living this wise life. That's pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy. It's beautiful. A wise life is one that interacts with other people successfully. And it's, verse 18, the peacemakers who sow in peace who reap a harvest of righteousness. It's a life lived in the wisdom of heaven that is reconciling relationships and bringing people together. But not only is it informational and incarnational, it's something that you live out. It's heavenly and not earthly. The wisdom that you choose is the wisdom that comes down, a wisdom 
that finds its, its, its center point, its birthing point, the place where it is, is brought into reality, the throne room of God. It's a wisdom that comes from heaven. Biblical wisdom is first and foremost rooted in God. One of the most basic teachings of the entire Old Testament is said very well in Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, as a kid growing up, I always wondered about that fear of the Lord. You know, what does it mean? Am I really supposed to be afraid of God? It doesn't seem like God wants me to be afraid of Him and all the descriptions of Him, even though He had this great and mighty power. So what does the fear of the Lord mean? You know what it means? It means to be struck with awe. Have you... Remember the first time you, you met your spouse and you, and you began to, to, to get information about that person that was so appealing to you and so beautiful, whether you know, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at your future husband or your future wife and you begin to get that knowledge about him and there were times when, when that person is so beautiful and that person is so appealing to you and, and the knowledge of that person is so winsome and so beautiful that you begin to tremble a little bit. And we all did. That's what it means to fear the God. It's to have this, this information about God that makes you fall down on your face and to tremble. It means to see God in such a way that you fall down on your face and you tremble because of the greatness of His holiness and His beauty. And it's out of that relationship that this wisdom comes that blesses your life in such a way that you become, you become a beauty. You, you become you become beautiful and you become you become uh you, you become not just righteous in the sense of morality but you become righteous in the sense of being put right with god and put right with men so how do you get this wisdom well james has already told us a couple of places earlier in the book right so how do you get this wisdom from heaven well, believe it or not, one of the places where you get this wisdom is from trials. You don't run from trials. In James chapter 1, he says, You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's another way of saying a, a wise person. It's that you've been through the fire, that you've been tested, you've been through the compression, you've been through the pressing, you've been through the gauntlet, and what you've come out as is not a wreck, but something of beauty. You've come out a diamond, you come out a jewel. You start as coal, but because of the trial and because of the pressure, because of everything that's brought on top of you, you come out a diamond. And if you've been through the trials, you know that trials have a way of deepening human beings when it comes to the way that they view life. And they view people. And the way that they, they, they set value on different things around them and the way that they see God. But not only do you not run from trials if you want to be wise, but number two, you request this wisdom from God. It's heavenly, not earthly. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. That is, you, you make a conscious effort to choose God's wisdom and ask Him for it in your prayers. And then number three, and, and we'll end with this, you allow God's Word to grow in you. He says in verse 21 of the first chapter, you humbly accept the Word planted in you. 
you know, we talked about this, and we won't go over it again at length as we've done in earlier messages, but, you know, what does it mean for the Word to be planted in you? It's agricultural language. And what James is saying here is remember that God's Word is not just two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional, it has power. It brings life into nothing. It brings the material world out of, out of nothing, out of, out of, as Genesis 1 would talk about, even putting order where there is chaos. And so that word that has power is actually a word that's implanted in you, which means that that word takes root in your heart, it begins to grow, and as it grows and flourishes, it begins to blossom. And as it blossoms in you, so do you. You blossom in places where you didn't know that you had buds. It's about letting God's word be planted in you in such a way that, that it does what all plants do when it's planted in the best soil. And what happens when you begin to live your life wisely like this, the way that James describes it, is that your life becomes the response from heaven and the answer, and the answer, the response of heaven to envy in the world and selfish ambition and disorder and every evil practice under the sun. It's, it's interesting to me where else the word wisdom shows up in the Bible. Paul uses the word quite a bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, beginning in verse 23, and reading kind of through the 30th verse, Paul says, you know, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom, from God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. What Paul is saying is that Jesus on the cross crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. How so? It's on the cross that you see the love of God and the sin of man brought together in a way that peace is sown and we become that harvest of righteousness. That's the wise life, exemplified in the cross of Jesus, where you see two things that don't really go together come together in such a way that it brings blessing to human beings and honor and glory to God. And that's one of the things that we always offer when we come together as a, as a church family is the opportunity for the wisdom of God to begin to make its way into your heart in such a way that it changes you. And all of those things that you regret and all of those things that you feel guilt about and the things that keep you up at night and the things that you fear from your past coming and chasing you down, all of those things merge with the grace and the love and the compassion and the mercy and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And those two things coming together result in forgiveness that is forever and ever and ever. And, and an opportunity for reconciliation between you and God, and God and you. And, and the opportunity for there to be a change in your life as, as you begin to take the hands off of the steering wheel of the management of your own life. And you allow another kind of wisdom to come into your life and not only direct your thought, but direct the way that you grow as a human being from that point forward. Transformation and all of that that takes place because of a different kind of a wisdom, a wisdom that comes down into your life. And if you'd like to have that, you've never had it and you would like to have it, then we can make that available to you tonight 
We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front, and David's going to lead us in a song. And if you feel that need to, to talk about how that can be a reality in your life, how that word can become planted in you and it takes root and it grows and it blossoms and you're changed and it's all because of God and God's love, as you, you begin to see more and more the beauty in Him, that beauty becomes yours, that can happen tonight. Or it may be that you know, one of the best things, most important things that you can do tonight is to recognize that you are a different person because of God. That God has, has not only saved you from yourself, but saved you from all kinds of, 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 of things that you could run your life into. He has saved you from that with the wisdom that comes down from above. Not just the wisdom that saves you and the wisdom that changes you and transforms you, but that wisdom that sets your feet in a direction which you are never the same, having followed that path. And if that describes you tonight, then David's going to lead us in a song right now. And the response for us is to praise him and to sing worship to his name because of the wisdom that has come to us. Let's stand and sing.